And as you're having a seat, if you would turn to Colossians chapter three, (laughs) Colossians chapter three, we're going to be there in just a moment here. Well, this TV show has been in the news a lot recently, has it not? Any uh, friends of, or fans of friends out there? Uh, I was, I gotta admit, I've never been like hugely into this TV show, but I was a little taken aback. Last week at this time, as you know, was when the news broke about Matthew Perry, who's one of the guys up there who played Chandler, who passed away. And I remember watching uh, this news about Israel and Gaza, and, and all of a sudden it was like breaking news. And into that came that Matthew Perry had died. And, and then they spent quite a bit of time on that. And I thought, wow, this, was, this is like major news for our society. And I was reflecting on that thinking about the, the cultural impact and the way this show reflected our culture in, in many, for many, the, the lived reality uh, that with the disintegration of many family units, uh, many young people in particular experience this, this heightened sense that friends have become the new family for many folks. And as I was studying this week, it dawned on me that, that this TV show would be uh, rather incomprehensible to the people who are living in the Roman Empire. Because in the Roman Empire, the, the, the household unit made up of wives and husbands and children and, and the bond servants who would be part of that community were the central aspect of, of the Roman society and system. Um, we're going to see today that just as pagan philosophers and thinkers reflected a lot on those households and how they relate to each other, and you see this in the uh, writings of Plato and Aristotle and Plutarch and etc., that that Paul is addressing the same thing and giving it a Christian spin, if you will, and how this is to work out in this new community of the church. So last week... Uh, Benji took us through the first part of, of Colossians chapter 3. And this is a lot of people's favorite stuff in scripture. I mean, those words that he talked about are just so rich about, you know, we've been uh, set your heart on things above, set your minds on things above because of who we are. We're united with Christ as Christians. We were united with Jesus in his death, and so our old life is gone. And our, uh, we're united with him. Uh, we've been raised with him through, in his resurrection And so our lives are to embody Jesus' new life. And Paul went on to use this uh, great metaphor of of clothing, of taking off certain clothes and putting on certain clothes. He says we're to take off the the clothes that represent our old lives with stuff like sexual immorality and impurity and wrath and dissension and anger and lying. He says all these were like your old life clothes. And you were to take those off and don't even bother giving them to goodwill. Just burn those things, right? And yet we're to put on new clothing, which are to represent our new life in Jesus. And this beautiful dress he describes, this outfit, of we're to clothe our things, ourselves with things like compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness. And he said, over all that, put on love, like this robe of splendor that, that Benji described last week. Well, in that sense that we are to embody new kinds of lives, uh, that passage went on to say that our, re- our relationships are to have a new dynamic too. They're to be marked by things like forgiveness, encouragement, kindness, and thanksgiving. 
And it's at the very end of that that he tries to kind of wrap up this section and say this is to entail everything, every part of our lives. And so we're going to pick up the text today uh, with the last verse that Benji preached on last week in Colossians 3.17, and we'll read through uh, chapter 4, verse 1. So if you're able to uh, honor the reading of God's word by standing, I invite you to do that with me. So we're going to start again, Colossians chapter 3. Verse 17, Paul said there, whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now he gets very practical in terms of relationships in life. And he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance As your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat and keep your Bibles open. So, I get to preach this week. (laughs) A passage like this demands a few things of us. Number one, a passage like this demands that we talk about the elephant in the room. There's a cringe factor, is there not, in reading this text? The words, wives submit to your husbands, sound primitive, even repulsive to many in our day, as do any words about slavery that don't come out as a firm and clear rebuke of the institution of slavery in general. So what do we do with a passage like this? So we need to deal with the cringe factor. We also need to talk about what these words actually mean and do they have any applicability for us today who live 2,000 years after Paul wrote them in a very different cultural context. One commentator, I thought, asked some very good questions. He says, how does it apply? How does this passage apply to a dual career uh, marriage, which has become the norm for most American families? Is his advice too culturally bound to the patriarchal ways of the first century to be useful to us today? Good questions. We need to explore this stuff. And third, we need to deal with the cringe factor, talk about what it means for us. Thirdly, what does this have to do with the good news of Jesus Christ? I'm aware every time I walk up here and open the scriptures and try to expound it as best I can, that I'm looking back at people who are just like me. People who need to hear a word of hope. People who need to hear encouragement. Life is hard uh, we don't want. We don't come to church wanting to hear a lecture about first-century societal norms. <laughs> we want to hear from God. We need to hear from God, and so this feels kind of like a steep order, but fair expectations uh, when we come to a text like this. So I'm hoping in the next 25 minutes or so, 
uh, to unpack this part of Colossians in a way that will help us say sincerely, uh, sincerely, thanks be to God for this word. So are you with me? Are we ready to jump in? Okay. That was a timid, okay. <laughs> Let's deal first with the cringe factor, shall we? <clears throat> when looking at a text like this, we need to acknowledge the ways that the uh, Christian scriptures have been used as weapons to hurt people. These verses in particular have been used to condone the evils of American slavery and have been used to condone the abuse of women. And uh, they've been used to keep the uh, pressed in bondage and the vulnerable subjugated. These are evils that it does no good to try to ignore or skirt around or deny. Rather, as Christians, we need to acknowledge this, to grieve this, and to the extent that these passages may be still being used in these ways to repent. Full stop. At the same time, we need to distinguish between those kind of evils that this has been used to propagate and, we, and the false narratives uh, uh, that have been used to lampoon the Christian faith. What, what kind of false narratives am I talking about? I'm talking about those who would say that Christianity is by nature oppressive or that the Christian faith is anti-woman. And I want to let you know, if that's what you're feeling this morning, nothing could be further from the truth. One of my favorite books that I've read in the last decade or so is a book called uh, The Rise of Christianity. It was written by a secular sociologist. And I think the subtitle uh, brings is, is really good. It describes what he's trying to do with this book. It's how the obscure, marginal Jesus movement became the dominant religious force in the Western world in just a few centuries. It's a good thing to do some research on. How does this little group of Christians, just imagine the the people that Paul was talking about who were meeting on a Sunday, just like we are, were were probably not nearly this many people. They were meeting in somebody's house or courtyard. And uh, how did that little group setting come to dominate Western civilization? And he, uh, Stark, again, not from a Christian perspective, but from a sociological perspective, looking at the data, and suggested a few things. One of the chapters he writes about uh, is the role of women in the growth of the early church. So Stark made these kind of observations. He writes, amidst contemporary denunciations of Christianity as patriarchal and sexist, it's easily forgotten that the early church was so especially attractive to women. Christianity was unusually appealing because within the Christian subculture, women enjoyed far higher status than did women in the Greco-Roman world at large. And so women flocked to the early church. Stark also pointed out how the church's rejection of certain things that were culturally accepted and appropriate uh, brought uh, a lot of favorability to for women. One being uh, female infanticide. Of course, the church stood against all killing of babies. But in that age, uh, largely, the female babies could be just left out and exposed to die. And Christians said, no, 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 that is inappropriate. And so many uh, little girls had life because of the early church. But not only that, their rejection of divorce, incest, marital infidelity, and polygamy all contributed to the uh, improved status of women in that day. Stark goes on says the Christian woman 
enjoyed far greater marital security and equality than did her pagan neighbor. And lastly, he pointed out how uh, the early church attracted an unusual number of of high-status women um, and, and that these women could play an important role in the life of their congregation. All of these things uh, contributed to uh, just the, the, the message of the gospel being attractive to women of that day. And, and hopefully that still is something that, that women in our culture hear as well. That it's good to be a woman. That God values your womanhood. Now I wish we had time to do the same thing with some of the narrative around slavery and we do not. Uh, I want to direct your attention to the excellent uh, piece that Chris Comstock, who was just up here a moment ago, uh, wrote in our study guide this week that helps us uh, distinguish a little bit the difference between American slavery and the slavery that was practiced in the Roman Empire. Um, furthermore, we're going to talk a little bit more about this as an institution in just a couple weeks when Benji teaches on Philemon. So let's move on beyond this cringe factor, if we can say it that way, to what do Paul's words actually mean and how how do they have relevance for us today? Well, Paul wants us to see, again, he's been talking about the new character of of Christians in Christ, and he wants us to see how this applies to the the nitty-gritty, the day-by-day lived normal mundane reality uh, realities of life. It, we might just say discipleship, if it's to be real discipleship, must begin at home. And the household, the family, oftentimes is the place that we find ourselves the most. So Paul addresses these home relationships with three pairs of uh, groupings. He talks about husbands and wives, parents and children, and bond servants and their masters. So let's look at the first one together shall we? Verse 18 and 19, he says, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So last week is uh, right after the 11, not right after, but a fair bit after the 11 o'clock service, almost everybody had cleared out. And uh, Susan Clayton over here and Casey and Kathy Roberts and I were talking in the back and, and Susan said, so who's preaching next week? She had obviously been reading ahead, and I said, I am. And she said, well, good luck with that. <laughs> That's it? Good luck? You don't have anything else to offer to me? Uh, but we went on to talk about that. She and I came to this church just about the same time, 30 years ago, and she's a brand-new Christian at the time. And she talked about one of the first home group experiences she had was, was in a, uh, working through a passage like this. And it, went, it came to this part on husbands and wives. I guess the conversation kind of stayed at this lofty, kind of just nice con, kind of conversation. And so at one point, Susan says, so what does this actually mean, wives submit to your husbands? And after some uncomfortable silence, I guess, one, one man, married man, says, well, if, uh, if my wife and I decide that we're going to buy a new car and I want a blue car, and she wants a red car, well, it means we get the blue car. And at that point, the, the home group kind of just erupts in chaos. And uh, Casey Roberts told me he looked over at Susan, who looked like she had this big mischievous smile. You knew exactly what you were doing when you <laughs> asked that question. Uh, in any case, is that what this is talking about? Is it simply a matter of who has the power, who's the boss, so to speak? I think it's this same kind of perspective uh, that the, there's a Greek proverb that says, if, if the husband is the head, the wife is the neck that just turns the head wherever direction she wants to go. 
And is that what this is about? Just a sense of, again, who has the power in the relationship? That's not Paul's concern at all, is it? Did you notice how Paul says to the wife, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord? He didn't say, submit to your husband as is fitting for your gender. That's not the case at all. Wives are called to submit to their husbands, not because of their husband's superiority, but because of the wife's loyalty to Jesus. That frames this in a whole different way. That is, submission is not a mark of a wife's inferiority, but is what is expected of all of us who are in Jesus, because submission describes the way of Jesus. He was in the form of God. Remember this part in Philippians 2? But he did not consider equality with God as a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself. He, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. That's why submission is part of a Christian's lifestyle. Now, whereas the instruction to the wife would have been expected, not the motivation, but the, the instruction would have been expected in that day and age, the instruction to the husband here would have been shocking to them. You don't find this in any of the ancient Near East uh, literature that talks about husbands and wives. The command to the husband is to love your wife. What does that mean? It does not mean to feel affectionate towards her, to feel nice towards her. Love in the scriptures is is a behavioral command. It, it, It means to lay down your life for the other person. This command to love sacrificially shows that Paul was not simply reinforcing the cultural norms of that day. Garland, again, this commentator, writes, No behavior of the wife's can cancel the husband's absolute obligation to love her. So soaking, fuming, grumbling, or worse, lashing out in verbal or physical violence, regardless of the provocation, real or imagined, is strictly forbidden. Now let me pause here for a moment. This is a good time to say, women... If you ever find yourself in an abusive marriage or abusive relationship and you're not sure if you want to come to church leaders with that information because you're afraid that if you do, you might be told to go back and submit to that abuser, I just want to assure you that is not what you're going to hear from here, from us. That's, you're not called to submit to somebody's tyranny or evil behavior. And as a church, we'll need to deal with that in ways that are healing and helpful. So, husbands, let me speak to you again. The kind of relationship that we're called to, the kind of behavior that we're called to, is behavior that is patient and kind. The kind of behavior that is conducive or appropriate for Christian husbands is that we are not irritable or resentful. The kind of love that bears all things, hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. Does that sound familiar? 1 Corinthians 13, love. Now, some of us husbands may need to go home and apologize to our wives today for how we've not loved them well and recommit to doing so. Not because of what we'll get out of it, but because this is how we've been loved by God. 
In the same way, some wives may need to go home today and apologize for ways that they have not submitted to their husbands, not because he's so great, but because that's the way you've been treated by the God of the universe who came to us as a servant. Now, can we move on? Husbands and wives have been treated, children and fathers now. And of course, fathers, not parents, are specifically mentioned because in that day, the father had absolute authority of the household. Children here are told, look at verse 20, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Again, a very common expected instruction, but a change of motivation now. They're called to obey their parents, not just because their parents are perfect people, but because of their desire to please their master, Jesus. Now, can I speak to young people in the room for a moment? This passage, when it says children, wouldn't be talking about just elementary school people. The the people of Colossians most likely lived in very multi-generational households. So this could have been adult married children as well. But I just want to speak to young folks for a moment. It is no use asking God to show you his will for your life. God, what's your plan for my life? If you're not willing to obey his very clear instructions, his very clear will for your life, that you honor your parents. Again, not based on their merits or their intelligence or their behavior, but on a desire to showcase Jesus Christ in your life, submitting to their authority. Now, parents, let's talk to you for a moment. This says that, that you are to... Uh, not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, Chris was just up here a moment ago, so he's about to be a new dad, and that's exciting. And I'm sure a lot of people in here could come up and testify, being a parent is easy. You're going to nail it. (laughs) It's a lot of laughter because we know that is far from the truth. Parenting is hard, is it not? It's real hard. We were out to eat last night, and uh, there, was a, there was a family sitting at a table in a very packed uh, restaurant, and uh, they must have been finishing up their dinner, and most of them were sit- sitting at the table, but one of them must have been like two or three years old, and they had just had it. They were at the end of their day, and just rolling around on the floor in the midst of all these people, you know, had a shirt that was kind of coming up, and pants that were off, and, you know, I just looked over, and I thought, you know, been there, done that, and God bless you guys for, uh, good luck, as Susan would say. Um, but you know, uh, hang in there parents in this hard work. There's a temptation. Kids, let me let you in on something. If you're not parents yet, there's a temptation for parents to see their kids behavior as reflections on themselves. And that's where a lot of our insecurity comes from as parents. So often, uh, we parent out of a desire to make ourselves look good and save ourselves from embarrassment or shame. And yet, uh, I want to say, parents, that there may be no one right way to parent your kid. You know, parents are always looking for a magic bullet. Like, you know, what did Dr. Spock say? Or raising kids God's way? Or this, you know, this or that. There's no one right way to parent. But there are wrong ways to parent, are there not? And Paul gives us uh, a good uh, encouragement here. That we're not to provoke our children lest they become discouraged. What does that mean to not provoke your kids? Well, I think things like constant criticism can provoke children. 
overbearing control, expecting your kids never to fail. These are wrong ways to parent that are not in line with the word of God here. The point in all of this, parents and children, I hope we see this, God's desire is that we recognize we're on the same team. And the ways that we relate to each other are to glorify the Lord Christ and showcase that we belong to him and that we're trying to live out a new humanity. Now, there's one more uh, space that Paul addresses, and that is bond servants and masters, or that could be translated slaves and slave owners. Again, I don't have time to... Uh, do justice to exploring all the questions that inevitably come up over how the gospel could coincide with an institution like slavery. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, Benji's going to preach on the, the book, the little book of Philemon in, in just a couple weeks. Philemon was a slave owner in Colossae, and it's most likely that the, the letter to Philemon and the letter to the Colossians were delivered together. And so as One scholar put it, R.C. Lucas, says the letter to Philemon vividly preserves for us some early evidence of the impact of the gospel on the slave-master relationship and leaves us very much aware that a new spirit was being let loose in Roman society through the church, which could not be contained in the old forms. What Lucas was saying and what we're going to see in a couple weeks in this letter to Philemon is that already... There, there's seeds of abolition rooted in the gospel itself. Now, I want us to look, though, about what this passage says to us. Look again at these instructions to bond servants. He says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Or that last sentence could be translated as a command. Serve the Lord or the master, same word in Greek, Christ. Now, did you notice in there, there were some commands, there was a promise, and there's a warning. The promise is that you will receive an inheritance. And that that language, you will receive, was probably heard by a slave. You will receive usually meant a punishment. But here, you will receive a reward, an inheritance that they wouldn't have been able to expect in their culture. But as Christians, they're elevated. Their humanity is noted. Their dignity is noted. And they will receive an inheritance as well. The warning is at the end uh, that the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. doesn't matter what station we find ourselves in life. God is an impartial judge, and he will look at all of us fairly in the work that we have done. But the commands to them uh, are just as relevant to us in our working lives today. So let's think about this together. We are to... Work not by way of eye service. I'm not sure what your translation has in front of you, but what might eye service mean? Well, eye service might be working in such a way just to catch your boss's eye and try to gain good favor. Uh, It might mean only working when his eye is on you or her eye is on you. Uh, Nobody ever wants in their job review form 
uh, to be said, works well under constant supervision, right? <laughs> it's like only when they're looking, you have to stay on this person. And Paul says, no, that's not to be the way Christians do their job. Uh, we're not to be people pleasers. We're not doing our work in whatever kind of work we have just to please people. We are to serve as we would the Lord. And so if, the, if you're a student right now, that's your work. And you're to do your work as to the Lord. If you're doing a menial job that you hope you can rise in the ranks over time, you are to see that work as meaningful to the Lord. And if you're in your vo- you know, treasured vocation that you've been aiming at, you're to see that as not just your place of gifting. You're to see that as your place to serve the Lord. And so the, the encouragement here is to work heartily. Give it your best. My... my this bugged me so much when my kids would, would call certain people in their class tryhards as like a, almost a denigration. Oh, they're a tryhard. Like, all Christians should be tryhards. Amen? <laughs> this is what we do. We try hard, not because we just want the best grade or we want you know, to get the bonus. We work hard because we are doing it as for the Lord. We're to give it our all, to give it our best. We're not doing it for the grade or the paycheck, but for the well-done, good and faithful servant from God. Now, remarkably, the message to masters here would have been countercultural. Look at it again. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants, two words here, justly and fairly. No one in that culture ever talked about treating their bondservants with justice. Because you don't think of justice in terms of your property. Nor would they have used the word fairness, which is very close to the Greek word for equality. But that is just the, the instruction given to these lords of the household, these masters. That they are commanded to act with their workers with justice and fairness. Because they too are servants of the one master, Jesus Christ. And I want to say to anybody in here, whatever position of authority you have, whether in in your job or your family, we are called to this as well, to treat people with dignity and justice and righteousness and fairness. Now, all of Paul's instructions are based, notice this, not on the laws of nature, not on nature of gender or the nature of your work or the nature of your position, but on the basis of our new nature, our new humanity in Christ. Jesus releases us to be truly human. And we must now learn to express ourselves according to the divine pattern, not in self-assertion and grabbing power and influence, but in self-giving. So I told you at the beginning, I want to address three things. I want to address the cringe factor. I want to address how this, these words relate to us in our place. And I want to talk about where's the good news in all of this. So can we talk about that for a moment? Friends, regardless of whether you are married or single, whether you're a child or a parent, regardless of if you have work that you find meaningful or not, there's a fundamental truth here that I hope you see and it brings you joy and hope this morning. And that is that God knows you, God sees you, God loves you, and he, the almighty one, 
the all-powerful one, the sovereign one, came and laid down his life for us. He emptied himself for you. What this means is that the life of Jesus not only brings us the forgiveness of our sins, which is good enough news in itself, is it not? But the gospel also gives every part of our life meaning and purpose. It enables us, even in the toughest circumstances, to see our service as acceptable to the Lord, even if it is not regarded or rewarded by anyone else. That's the gospel, the life of Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you've heard the statement that blood is thicker than water. Have you heard that? It means that that family relationships, your blood relationships are the most important ones and have the tightest pull on our lives. But I want to tell you this morning again that the opposite is actually true in the Christian life. The waters of baptism are thicker than blood. And if you have come to faith in Christ, you have become part of this Christian community, this family of God in which we, we all represent the pattern laid down for us by Jesus. Every time we come and we gather around the family dinner table, here it is, we take bread and we remember that the body of Christ was broken for us. The body of Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, he laid down for us. And we dip it in this cup and we remember that his blood was shed for us to cover all of our sins. Friends, all of your sins have been covered in the blood of Christ if you trust him. And we ask at this table, just as we do at the family dinner table, we hope that the food will give us strength to, to keep living well. So at this table, we ask that these elements will strengthen us to live out some really hard situations in your marriages, with your parents or your children, your grandchildren, in your workplace. And so as we come and we worship Christ at this table, I want to remind you that the prayer teams will be available on the right and the left, maybe in the back as well. And... Uh, you might want to ask them to pray today for your work, your studies, for your family situation, for your marriage, for your singleness. All of these things are more appropriate to ask prayer for. But uh, let me pray for us before we come to the table. Lord, we so need your help to live as your people, to live as husbands and wives, to live as parents and children, to live as disciples of Jesus in our workplace. And we thank you for the model that you laid down for us of giving yourself entirely, uh, that the glory of God might have full display. Help us, Lord, as your people, to live in such a way that honors you in all these places and more. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.